tuned into How to OT, making research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. On today's episode of How to OT, I am joined with Nina Sasser, our first master's in occupational therapy student featured on the show. Thanks for joining, Nina. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So I'm an OTD student. Nina is getting her master's and she's in the cohort below me. So we weren't able to have very many classes together, but your research sounds extremely interesting. And I also wanted to highlight that last year you were in the Washington University Med School Musical, uh, which was Shrek the Musical, and you played a part as Princess Fiona. Is that right? I was Teen Fiona. But yes, that is right. Okay, so you were... Teenage you were, version of her, yes. <laughs> the adolescent teenage version mm-hmm. of Princess Fiona. Nice. And you're an excellent singer. I watched the show and I was very impressed by the whole production and your part as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And you're calling in from Maine. How's everything going up there? It's going pretty well. We actually got a few inches of snow yesterday. So that's April in Maine for you. Wow. Um, But yeah, it's been nice hanging out with my parents and my cats. Different than how I pictured ending my last semester, but just rolling with the punches. That's that's the right attitude um, to have about it. And it is a bummer because you've done some extremely interesting research and kind of lost the opportunity to be able to present that research, I know, at Scholarship Day and potentially AOTA or other conferences as well. Yeah, so I'm still planning to submit to AOTA for next year. Um, So hopefully that will happen. But I was definitely disappointed to not have the opportunity to present at Scholarship Day. Well, let's start talking about your research. Uh, Your project was called Safe Sex, Contraception, and Fertility Options for People with Spinal Cord Injury, What Clients Want, and the Role of OT in Ensuring Access to Knowledge and Services. First question, I want to ask you if there was something or someone that inspired you to take on this project. Yeah, so I've always been very interested in sexual health advocacy And I actually had considered going into OBGYN nursing um, before settling on OT. But once I chose to go into OT, I guess I sort of assumed that I wouldn't be doing anything relating to sexual health advocacy in a professional capacity. But then I attended scholarship day at WashU the spring before I began my first semester, and I heard a couple student presentations about our role as OT working with clients with spinal cord injuries and helping to address concerns relating to sexuality. And I had this kind of aha moment that OT and sexual health are not totally separate areas of healthcare. Um, So that was really exciting for me. And I would say that moment sparked my interest in this area. I was able to join the same research lab, Dr. Carla Walker's lab, that these two students that I spoke with at Scholarship Day were part of, and um, she gave me a lot of really good resources um, to do some background reading into the issues experienced by people with disabilities regarding sexuality. After my first semester in Carla's lab, I 
determined that two barriers that are commonly experienced by the spinal cord injury population are um, a lack of access to information and resources on um, having safe sex, and then also accessing reproductive health services and fertility services. And also, I became aware of this larger, more societal issue of asexualizing people with disabilities. So a lot of the time, either consciously or unconsciously, people don't see people with disabilities as having sexual desire, having sexual wants, um, and that's obviously incorrect and a huge problem. Um, so um, I read a lot written by people with disabilities about how they've been treated differently by healthcare workers and being denied services like um, testing for sexually transmitted infections, not denied services, but they're not statistically offered as often to people with disabilities because there's this underlying assumption that this topic doesn't pertain to them. So that was sort of the big societal problem that I was hoping to um, start to get to the bottom of with this project. Yeah, and that really emphasizes the importance of this project and being something that can really help and impact people who have had a spinal cord injury, but also can be really influential in the perception that healthcare workers have of how people with disabilities live their life or um, want to live their life. So I'm excited to, to dive into it. Let's go ahead and start with your literature review and background, and then we'll go from, what, from there and kind of see how this project developed. But what did you find in the literature or in just science in general that supports the need for your project? So one of the biggest themes I found doing my lit review was that people with spinal cord injuries want to have this conversation, but most of the time this conversation is not happening. So sexuality and parenting concerns just aren't brought up in inpatient rehab. Um, and that was um, cited as a really prominent concern um, to not have access to this information and to not even be able to start that conversation. I found a lot of evidence supporting just the importance of engaging in sexual activity after experiencing a spinal cord injury. Um, one study did a survey of people with spinal cord injuries and most people rated regaining sexual function as more important than being able to walk again, which I found really surprising, but it really just emphasized how this is an important topic for this population. And then there's also a lot of evidence about how having a sexual, having sexual experiences after a spinal cord injury can really improve self-esteem and adjustment to the injury and just general psychological well-being in this population. So as a profession concerned with promoting quality of life among our clients, it really is a pertinent topic to OT. Absolutely. And hearing some of those statistics, it's really clear and evident that sexual function is something super important to people who have had a spinal cord injury. But why do you think people are not receiving information on sexual and reproductive health in the rehabilitation settings? There are a number of reasons why this is happening. I think the biggest challenge is 
healthcare workers just feel uncomfortable bringing this topic up since it is very personal. And I think people are afraid that they might offend their client or hurt rapport. Um, and it's true that not everyone wants to have this conversation with healthcare professionals, but the bottom line is we have to at least give people permission to talk about these concerns if they want to. So discomfort is a big barrier. Lack of knowledge is another barrier that was cited a lot. So people feel like they don't have enough information on this topic to have a meaningful conversation with their clients. Not having enough time is another challenge. So rehab stays have gotten shorter and shorter for spinal cord injury and for other disabilities as well. So don't quote me on this, but I think average stay used to be six months to a year, and now it's more like six to eight weeks. Um, so it's really, there's just not enough time to cover everything that needs to be covered in rehab, especially with a diagnosis like spinal cord injury that has so many functional implications afterwards. Um, so lack of time is another barrier. And then because addressing sexual concerns does not explicitly fall to one profession, there's sort of this assumption that some other healthcare professional is having this conversation with the patient. And most of the time, this distribution of responsibility means that nobody's talking about it. Wow, that's extremely interesting and a lot of things I hadn't considered before. Um, would you say that the objective or purpose of your study was to combat these barriers? I think that was definitely part of it, trying to normalize this conversation and destigmatize sexuality and disability was a big part of this project. Another objective of my project was to provide this information to people in the community who um, have been through inpatient rehab, who have not had this information delivered to them, um, and to provide a different format to get the information to them. So in an ideal world, people would be receiving this information during the rehabilitation stay, but that's really not happening for all those reasons you listed. And you actually developed an educational course for people uh, with spinal cord injury living in the community so that they could receive this information after the fact. Is that right? Yes. Ideally, people would have had this conversation started in rehab, but because that's, that's not usually happening, this provided another, another means to get them the information. And can you walk us through the design of that course and maybe touch on some of the topics that you teach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I did a full literature review of these topics, um, and then I started by compiling this information into more of a formal document uh, lit review. And then from there, I created fact sheets that were then incorporated into a booklet that everyone gets when they join our clinic. And it just broke out all the very complex information I found into more accessible information. In terms of the educational content, there were two main focuses of the session. The first part was on the physical and psychological impacts of disability on sexuality and talking about um, how people in the group have found this to be the case and also potential solutions for these problems. Um, and then the second part of the course focused on different fertility methods for people with spinal cord injuries. 
I'd really just like to take this opportunity to say when I was reviewing your materials, I was really impressed with how well put together they are. They're chock full of information. Those, uh, those fact sheets are so helpful in providing information in a professional and really understandable way. Um, so I thought it was very well done. Glad that you found that to be the case. I think I'd like now to talk a little bit more about each of these topics that you covered uh, individually. So to start out, can you talk about some of the physical impacts of disability on sexual function? Yes. There are a lot of different ways that um, sexual function is impacted by a spinal cord injury. I'd say the biggest issues encountered are the disruption between the brain and the genitals that happens during a spinal cord injury that makes sexual function a lot harder. So um, there are two pathways um, that control sexual function and sexual response. So there's the psychogenic pathway and the reflexogenic pathway. Um, so with a spinal cord injury, usually the psychogenic pathway is affected, but the reflexogenic is not impacted. Um, and I'll explain what these terms mean. Um, so psychogenic is responsible for generating a sexual response from thinking about sex. Um, and that's that pathway from the brain to the genitals. And then the reflexogenic pathway is more like a reflex response and it doesn't actually travel up the spinal cord to the brain. And that's responsible for a sexual response. Um, so an erection or lubrication from physical touch. So the Psychogenic pathway is affected if the spinal cord injury is above the T11 spinal cord level. Um, and the reflexogenic pathway is only between S2 and S4 of the spinal cord. So if the spinal cord injury is above T11, which most often they are, that means that the reflexogenic pathway is left intact, but the psychogenic pathway is interrupted by the lesion in the spinal cord. Um, so what that means functionally is people can still have a sexual response from physical touch, but they cannot generate a sexual response from just thinking about sex. I think sexual function is something that a lot of people tie to their personal identity. So from a practitioner's perspective, being able to know this information and share it with a client can make a huge difference in the client's perceptions of how life has changed since their spinal cord injury and really help them to know how to adapt or change things to still be able to participate in their life and their occupations the way that they want to. Absolutely. Yeah. And I also wanted to touch on, um, those are just kind of the direct physical implications of a spinal cord injury, but there are a lot of secondary conditions that come with a spinal cord injury that also impact sexuality. Lack of control over Bowel and bladder is a big one. Um, sport, sport skin integrity is a big one. So risk of pressure sores during sexual activity. There's a, a huge need for OT with this occupation because there are so many ways that sexuality is impacted by a spinal cord injury. And like you said, it is, it's part of someone's identity. So it's really crucial that we touch on it. Absolutely. So how can OT really approach sexual function with someone who has a spinal cord injury. Uh, say, for example, someone who 
now only the reflexogenic pathway is intact. What would an OT say and what kind of education or intervention could an OT provide? There are a lot of solutions that can help with the lack of the psychogenic pathway. Um, and I think we're gonna get into those in more detail later, but more generally as an OT, I think first of all, validating their concerns and um, sort of letting them grieve this loss of function that they had previously that they no longer have is um, a big part of the process. Um, and then um, there are different medications that you can take to um, enhance sexual performance without that psychogenic pathway. Um, and then there are also things you can do for the secondary conditions like alternative positioning to facilitate motion um, and reduce the risk of pressure sores. And then advocating for your clients and connecting them to the right professionals is a huge part. Um, so there's just a lot of different things that OT can do um, to help with these concerns. Absolutely. Is biological parenthood an option for someone who has a spinal cord injury? Yes. Biological parenthood is an option for people, but for biological males, the process will most likely look very different. For biological females, it's actually not interrupted. Um, and that really advocates for safe and effective contraception in this population um, because fertility is not impacted at all by a spinal cord injury. Um, I also want to mention that I'll use the terms male and female throughout this conversation. And I just want to recognize that I'm just talking about reproductive organs when I use these terms and I'm not equating these terms with gender identity because those don't always align. So when I say male and female, I'm just talking about body parts, not gender expression. Absolutely. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. What ways is biological parenthood different for people with spinal cord injury or specifically males um, after you mentioned that? There are three main issues encountered by males with spinal cord injuries when trying to have biological children. So the first is issues with maintaining erections. The second, problems with ejaculating is really common. About 95% of males with spinal cord injuries have trouble with this. And then also, even if those issues can be solved or sperm quality is another issue that impacts people with spinal cord injuries at a much higher level than the general population. Um, and that's because the sperm motility is lower. I guess that more has to deal with uh, inception and, and pregnancy. But past that, people with spinal cord injury can be wonderful parents of large families. Absolutely. There are a lot of solutions that can work around these issues and also a lot of parents opt to adopt kids. Um, so absolutely people with spinal cord injuries can start families. I think we'll talk about some of those fertility options, um, but before we dive into that, can we talk about some of the psychological impacts of disability on sexual function? Yes. So there are a number of psychosocial impacts on sexual function just because someone's identity is often very affected by this new disability diagnosis. And also 
interactions and relationships with other people are often affected as well. So depression is a common um, effect after a spinal cord injury, anxiety, substance abuse, um, poor self-esteem, having trouble accepting altered abilities, and all of those um, psychological impacts can definitely impact sexuality. Also, low sexual desire is a commonly cited problem for individuals with spinal cord injuries. Um, lack of confidence in their sexual abilities and ability to satisfy their partner. Social isolation after an injury, not having as ready access to the community as you did before is a big one. And that makes it difficult to meet new partners. Also, um, like I mentioned before, relationship dynamics can change a lot after a spinal cord injury, especially if your partner is assuming caregiving roles after your injury. Um, that can really change the dynamic of a relationship. And then just a general disruption of habits and routines can impact sexuality as well. How would you say someone who experiences a spinal cord injury redefines sex? So I think it's really important to keep in mind when working with any client that our idea of what sex is does not necessarily match our client's idea of what sex is, especially if there is a disability. I think as a society, we tend to have a very narrow view of what sex is that is heteronormative and not inclusive to people with different abilities. So I think it's really important for healthcare professionals to keep that in mind when addressing sex with your clients and with clients with spinal cord injuries, that what you might think of as sex is not what they think of as sex. Um, after a spinal cord injury, new erogenous zones can emerge. So that could really affect the way that someone's having sex. Um, and then there are a lot of physical complications that I've mentioned that can make the way that they were having sex before not as feasible anymore. I think it's important to remember that every person has sex differently. It's not just people with disabilities um, and that you can't project your own view of what sex is and what sex means onto your clients. Very well said. Let's touch now back on some of the fertility options people with SEI should be aware of or are available uh, to them. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, the three common issues for fertility are achieving erections, difficulty with ejaculation, and poor semen quality. Um, so some solutions for Helping to achieve erections include medications like Viagra. There are vacuum devices that fit over someone's penis that draw blood into it to achieve an erection. There are also penile rings that can help sustain erections. And then intracavernosal injections are shots that you can administer directly into the penis to achieve an erection. So... There are a lot of options here. Um, also, penile prosthesis surgery is a more invasive and expensive procedure, but it's also more long-term, and that involves surgically implanting a device into the penis that um, has a reservoir pump that pumps air into it. So anytime you want to engage in sexual activity, you don't have to take a medication an hour beforehand or, or think about all these other things you have to do before sex, it's just ready to go. So I think 
a lot of people with spinal cord injuries opt for that solution because it is more long-term, but there are so many choices and it's important to um, take every client's needs into consideration when making that choice. Um, and then for addressing ejaculation, there are three main strategies that are used. Prostatic massage involves stimulating the prostate either internally or externally, and that can be done either by a trained healthcare professional, or it can be done by yourself or by your partner. It's about 80% effective for achieving ejaculation for people with spinal cord injuries at or above the T10 level. Um, other strategies include penile vibratory stimulation, which involves using a vibrating device to achieve ejaculation. Um, and then the Finally, there's electro ejaculation, which is a little bit more involved and expensive, and it does have to be performed in a doctor's office by a trained professional, and that involves inserting a probe into the rectum and using electrical energy to stimulate the prostate, which then achieves ejaculation. Um, and this method is actually 100% effective, but it is more invasive and more expensive, and if someone has an incomplete spinal cord injury and does have some feeling below the waist, it can be very uncomfortable. And then finally, um, if the issue is poor semen quality, surgical sperm retrieval is a good option for this. And that involves extracting sperm directly from the testes and then concentrating that sperm into a sperm pellet, which is then used during IVF or in vitro fertilization. Best to start with the, the least involved, least invasive procedures and sort of problem solve through the process. And then um, there are more involved procedures if that needs to happen. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And there really are so many options available to people with spinal cord injuries. And I think as occupational therapy practitioners, it's so important to be aware of all of these options. Um, but say, for example, I'm working with a client who has a spinal cord injury and they really want to learn more about one of these um, specific interventions or see a specialist. What does the referral or next steps look like uh, for a practitioner? If I was a practitioner in that situation, I would refer them to a urologist or a fertility clinic to um, learn more about these options. Um, since this is kind of outside the scope of OT, we're not going to be delivering these services to clients. And also I direct them to a lot of online resources that lay out these options in a very accessible format. So I know that the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation has a lot of good information about this. Um, SCIRE, which stands for Spinal Cord Injury Research Education, uh, Research Evidence, um, they have a ton of great information. And so I think I would give them these online resources and then also make a referral to a fertility clinic or a urologist. And what about uh, contraception or birth control options? So this can be a complicated choice for females with spinal cord injuries because there are so many secondary health conditions with spinal cord injury that interact negatively with birth control options. Um, for instance, blood clots are a really common issue with people with spinal cord injuries, and they're also a common side effect of any birth control that contains estrogen. Um, so the birth control pill, the patch, the vaginal ring, 
um, a lot of the time these contain estrogen and can put clients at an increased risk of developing blood clots. However, um, progestin is a synthetic hormone that does not increase blood clots. Um, so it's important to make clients aware of this, that um, some of these options I mentioned before, like the pill and the vaginal ring, have progestin-only options that would be a lot safer for clients with spinal cord injuries. Another issue is ectopic pregnancy, um, which is a concern for anyone using certain birth control methods, but it's especially a concern for people with spinal cord injuries if they don't have feeling in their abdomen because they might not feel the symptoms of an ectopic pregnancy, which is a serious condition in which a fertilized egg implants outside the uterus, um, and it can be fatal if left untreated. So because clients might not have the ability to detect this serious medical condition, certain birth control options like the IUD, the hormonal implant, which is the one that um, is implanted into your arm, and the shot might not be the best choice. Um, I, I do want to mention, however, that not using any kind of birth control actually puts people at a greater risk of ectopic pregnancy than the three birth control methods I mentioned. And I think that's a common misconception. Like people don't want to get an IUD because they're afraid of ectopic pregnancy when in reality, it actually decreases your odds of having this happen, but it's not as safe as other birth control options like the pill or the patch or a vaginal ring. I hope that made sense. Yeah, no, that's extremely interesting. Um, and all this information, and I'm sure much more, you shared in your community-based class. And I wanted now to ask you some more specifics about that class um, and how it was received. Were people willing to participate as they attended your class? Yeah, I was very happy with the amount of participation um, that happened in the class. Uh, we try to make it as interactive as possible and not just us talking at people for an hour and a half, so it's more meaningful to them. Um, so this class was a mixture of discussions and more lecture-based material. The content on different fertility options was a little bit more lecture style, but when we talked about the different physical and psychological impacts of disability on sexual function, that was much more conversational. Um, and I was really happy with um, the amount of participation in the class. We also have someone who serves as a peer in our class, who's someone who's had a spinal cord injury for a number of years. And he is was a tremendous resource for the class. I think it's a lot more meaningful to hear from someone who has had a spinal cord injury, uh, who, who has a spinal cord injury than someone who's never lived through the experience. So I was really happy to have this here there to serve as a resource for our class. And he was very willing to share his experiences with talking about sexuality and rehab and different fertility methods that he had tried. So that was awesome to get that perspective. Um, and I will say that he was the only person out of the six people in the class that had had any kind of conversation about sex and rehab. So that definitely reinforced what I learned in the literature. Yeah, that definitely emphasizes the need for more classes and mm -hmm. education materials like this 
And you, you mentioned there were six people in the course. How many classes total uh, were taught? We do four classes a semester. Um, and then we also have the option for one-on-one OT sessions. So I think about three or four people this semester opted to have the one-on-one sessions. And so the classes are more general information that could, could pertain to anyone with a spinal cord injury, um, whereas the one-on-one sessions were really geared towards their individual goals. Um, so that was the format of the class. In the class, we had five group participants and one peer serving in the class. And what were some of the results or key findings that you observed from participation in this course? I think the biggest takeaway for me was just the positive impressions of the people in the class. People said the information was really helpful, that a lot of people didn't know about any of this information before the class. Um, And with the exception of the peer in our class, no one had even talked about it in the rehab setting. Um, So people said it was really helpful to know about all these options. One participant said the session was mind-blowing, which I thought was pretty cool. (laughs) However, it shouldn't have been earth-shattering information. This should have been a conversation that was started much sooner. So I think it really just spoke to the need to have more readily accessible information on these topics for people with disabilities and specifically with spinal cord injuries. And I think that student experiential learning clinics like the one in Carla Walker's lab have the potential to to fill this need. Um, And I think the positive impressions of group members really spoke to that. Absolutely. And can you share a clinical observation or maybe a story of a positive outcome that a participant received from engaging in this course? Yeah, I think in terms of this course, I think it's a little, we haven't had a lot of interaction with these participants since because of COVID. Um, So we haven't done any of the post assessments yet. However, in the fall, we didn't present this specific course, but we did present a course on um, sexuality and communication and meeting new partners. I had a really wonderful takeaway from that experience. Um, The client that I was working one-on-one with, we do an assessment with clients um, called the Community Participation Indicators, in which they rate different activities as they're important to them, if they're doing them enough, if they're not important. Um, And before the sessions, this client, the item was spending time with a significant other. And in the pre-assessment, he said, like, that's not important to me. I'm doing it enough. I'm not interested in that. But in the post-assessment, after he went through the four courses, he changed his response to, you know what, that is something I want in my future. And I could see that happening in my future. So I think that was huge, just that change in mentality from, you know, that's not an option for me right now because of my spinal cord injury or, or whatever else is going on, um, to really seeing that as, as a reality. I thought that was extremely exciting. 
Absolutely. It sounds like this is really, this really highlights the potential of your project and interventions like this project and that they can change the perception and perspective of people in relation to how they engage in, in sex and how they engage in these meaningful occupations. Absolutely. I know we've covered a lot of material and I want to shift now to some personal and opinion questions. But before we do that, I wanted to ask if there's anything else you'd like to add about um, what the occupational therapy practitioner role is uh, with this population and topic. I just want to reiterate that it is within our role to address this topic and to make these known to clients and really just to open this door. Um, I think the biggest issue right now is that we're not giving clients permission to voice these concerns. And I think we really just need to make sure that we are giving clients an opportunity to talk about it. That's a great call to action. Thank you. Now, Nina, I want to ask you, what have you enjoyed most about your project? I think the highlight for me was really getting to dive into the literature on this topic and put together these resources for clients. There were, I, I spent a lot of hours just going through so many research articles and sometimes I would just get so caught up in it that it didn't really even feel like work and I couldn't even tell that time was passing. So it's really getting in that kind of flow mindset. So that was pretty cool. I think it's a good sign when your research doesn't feel like work. <laughs> Absolutely. It's great to feel passionate about what you're working on. And I can definitely tell that you are passionate about this topic and extremely knowledgeable as well. But unfortunately, we both know research isn't always easy. Um, what was difficult about completing this project? So one thing that was difficult is to date, there has not been a single research study on contraception for people with spinal cord injuries. So it was a little difficult putting together this material when I didn't have a single peer-reviewed study to base this information on. Um, it was a lot of sort of doing a lot more research on the topic and how spinal cord, the secondary complications of spinal cord injury and just sort of making these connections on my own. So that was definitely a difficult part of the process um, and definitely advocates for more research to be done on this topic um, to make sure that people with spinal cord injuries can have sex and, and truly be safe while doing it. I think another difficult part was just going into the session and confidently presenting this material to the group participants. Um, even though I know this is an important topic and I'm very passionate about it, it is really personal and you always do have a fear that you might offend someone or it might be too much information. Um, so I think that was a little bit nerve wracking, but it was a good exercise to push through that discomfort um, because I knew whatever I was feeling in that moment was not significant um, compared to the need for these clients to receive this information. That's a really good perspective to have on it. How will this research influence your future practice and career decisions? I think I'll be a lot more aware of the potential concerns my clients 
might have about sex after experiencing a disability. So that will be wonderful to have that added insight um, from this project. And I think I will be much more diligent about including sexuality in the conversation, even in an elevator speech that you give to clients. Like we can help people with their ADLs, we can help people get back to work, we can help them with leisure, we can help with sexual concerns, like just making that part of the conversation. I, I love that. I think that's uh, a great point and could be extremely valuable in normalizing talking about sex as a healthcare worker with the clients that we see, because it's an important part of life that, that shouldn't be ignored. What do you hope that occupational therapy practitioners take away from your study? I hope that people take away that clients want this conversation to happen and they will not bring it up. So you can't wait for clients to bring up these concerns and assume that their silence means, oh, they, they don't care about this. They don't want to talk about it. I will say that not everyone does want to talk about it, um, but just making sure you always give clients permission to talk about it if they want to. And what resources would you recommend to people or practitioners who want to learn more about this topic? Yeah, so some of the resources I mentioned earlier, like the Christopher and Dana Reef Foundation is a great one. And then Skyer Spinal Cord Injury Research Evidence. Um, both of their websites have a ton of great information on this topic. Um, also, Model Systems Knowledge Translation Center, their website has a lot of great information about spinal cord injury and sexuality. Um, the Paralyzed Veterans of America has a self-management resource called Yes You Can, which goes through lots of different topics um, about self-management and spinal cord injury. And they have a whole chapter about sexuality, which um, provides a lot of details. And that's a great resource that is geared towards clients. And then for OTs, there's a great book called Sexuality and Occupational Therapy Strategies for Persons with Disabilities. And that was an assigned reading for Carla's lab. Um, and that was where I got a lot of the background information on this topic that inspired the research I did. Um, so that's a great one for OT practitioners. Um, and then there's also a great documentary on YouTube called Real Love, which chronicles the journey of a couple. Um, the man has a spinal cord injury and they're trying to have a baby and just all of the complications that can come up and the emotional implications of that. And they also interview different couples in which someone has a spinal cord injury and um, they talk about sex and parenting. And it's a really feel good documentary that I would highly recommend. It's only about 20 minutes and it's on YouTube. Awesome. And if you can send me like a list of all these resources, I can even put them in the episode description of this show. Uh, so people who listen can just click them right there and learn more. Yeah, absolutely. Nina, what if people want to see your course? Can they contact you if they have questions um, about your course or even your uh, fact sheets? Absolutely. Um, I have, I can send people the fact sheets. I have the PowerPoint presentation that we used in the course. And I also have a script that we used um, during the course. And I'd be happy to share that with anyone who's interested. Awesome. How can someone get in touch with you? 
Um, if you want to email me at Nina R. Sasser at gmail.com, that's a great way. Awesome. You said it was Nina underscore Sasser? R, the letter R. Nina R, okay. Yes. Perfect. And I only have one more question for you, the golden nugget segment. <laughs> but before we get to that, I want to ask if uh, there's anyone you'd like to thank or acknowledge in the completion of this research. Oh my gosh, um, definitely. I'd say number one, Carla Walker. Um, she served as my mentor through this whole process and she guided my research um, and the development of this content um, and she's just wonderful. I also want to give a shout out to the other students in my lab. Um, so that would be Rachel Phillip, Leanna Namovic, uh, Najiba Zaidova, and Marissa Wonka. And they've all, <clears throat> during different parts of this process, given me feedback on my resources and how to make them um, more accessible to clients. And um, they've just been wonderful throughout. Um, and then I also would love to give a shout out to my mom. Um, she edited my entire 25 page lit review, which I don't know a lot of people that would be willing to do that for me. So yeah, and she's even let me, if there was a part of the session that, you know, I was nervous about, she would let me practice on her. So she's been my biggest cheerleader for sure. It sounds like you had a, a great supporting cast. All right, Nina, last question. What's one thing you learned from this process that you wish everyone knew? I wish that people knew how big of a difference having meaningful sexual experiences can have in terms of adjusting to a disability. I think that is the biggest takeaway for me, and I didn't realize the magnitude of it before doing this research, um, and that really just advocates for our involvement in facilitating this process in any way we can. Awesome. Very well said. And I just want to thank you again for your time and for this interview. It's been really fun. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for listening to How to OT. Tune in next time for another episode where we bring accessible and consumable research straight to you. Hey, I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. I'm on vacation every single day Cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation every single day Every, every single day Hey, I'm on vacation every single day Cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation every single day Every, every single day Everybody sour like a lemon tree I'm just smiling down upon my enemies So thankful for everything Rejuvenating my inner light as I work hard for all I need Open arms, embracing life and all the which you gave to me I work, it pays off, I'm happy now, it's paying me Close my eyes, sometimes I feel as if I blow away I love the life I live and enjoy the ride along the way I'll make a living out of living
Change it. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. 